If you were here about a month ago when I was teaching, uh, when I last taught, I covered a passage that I found particularly encouraging when considering our relationship to unbelievers and opponents in our lives. And we were looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, on the subject of God granting repentance. And we looked specifically at how God grants repentance. Uh, to those who are obstinate, to those who are opponents in our lives. How God can grant repentance to anyone. And how He often does grant repentance. And we considered two important truths, if you remember, from that passage. And uh, the two truths were simply what we can do and what God can do. And holding both of those was important to understanding God-granting repentance. We can only do so much. We can be kind. We can teach. We can patiently endure. We can gently correct. These were in the passage. But we saw that it is ultimately God who grants repentance. It is only God who can change the heart of a soul. Only He can bring a person to their senses. Only He could lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Only He can deliver them. And only He can awaken. Uh, today I want to uh, take that same truth, that, that same truth that God is the giver of spiritual life, And what I want to do is look at a few Scriptures together and be encouraged in another way, which is that God, in His good pleasure, can bring life not just to individuals in our lives, God can awaken and even often does awaken multitudes to Himself. And this is what we call revival. Uh, So this brings up an important question. What is Revival. It is a buzzword in our day that gets tossed around a lot. You hear different ways that it's explained. There are some who explain revival in sort of an over-sensationalized, overused way. And they speak of it as, this, as though it's happening all the time. And it's, it's got to be some fanatical event. Perhaps it's spoken in man-centered ways as though it's something that could be humanly engineered. I know a guy who uh, once used to say to me that his church, he would just kind of announce every so often, uh, this week my church is having a revival. I'd just be like, really? You're having a revival this Sunday? And the idea is, some hold the view that you can arrange certain meetings and put everything in place and God will act if you do this and that. That's one extreme. There are others who, perhaps disillusioned with that excess, disassociate from the term altogether. And the idea of revival is a big turnoff. It's something of a distaste to the Christian community. Uh, Because it is so over-abused, perhaps they steer clear of talking about revival or thinking about revival altogether. Some hold to this. As is often true with extremes, uh, there's somewhere the truth is usually in between. Um, I would make the case, as would many theologians, that there is indeed a biblical concept of revival in Scripture and in the history of the church. And it's not a humanly engineered uh, event. And it's not something that is to be ignored. Uh, even though we know the age will decline to get, go from bad to worse, there are what theologians have called interrupted blessings that God loves to usher in to bring people to Himself. I think one of the most uh, balanced and and best authors on the topic of revival is uh, Ian Murray. Uh, Ian Murray is one who I would argue is probably one of the best at sort of balancing out these concepts, and I recommend any of his material to you guys. Uh, Here's Ian Murray's basic definition of revival. Ian Murray says this, looking at the history of the church, 
Revival in English usage commonly suggests the recovery of life when it is in decay. And therefore, if that is to be taken to be the essence of the meaning, revival only occurs where there has been a preceding decline in churches. End quote. Uh, so you see, that there's this uh, d- assumption that there's a, a decline and an incline within redemptive history. Uh, this is a simple but a reasonable summary of what revival is. Uh, in other words, if we're saying that there are times in redemptive history where, where God brings an awakening, it implies that there are times that the churches can fall into spiritual slumber. Even spiritual deadness. And I would argue both Scripture and church history have shown this to be the case. Now, an important clarification is that God never leaves any generation without a witness. And it's a scriptural truth that God, in in advancing His kingdom, preserves a remnant who hold to His truth and who preserve worship on the earth. We're not denying that. God always is active with His Holy Spirit. His Spirit is never absent from the earth. What we're talking about in these declines is that there are times in the history of God's people when lukewarmness becomes prevalent in the churches. Prevalent. There are times when there is such a spiritual slumber, such a lack of sound teaching, such a lack of godliness, that there is a great need of a greater manifestation of the Spirit's power. A need for greater zeal for the Lord. And there are times in the history of the church and God's people when God does this. And this is what we refer to as revival. Uh, Murray elsewhere gives a more theological definition. A theological definition of revival. Quote, A revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought about by the intercession of Christ, resulting in a new degree of life in the churches and a widespread movement of grace among the unconverted. End quote. That's a helpful theological definition. It's, it's balanced. It's, it's just plain. Uh, the idea is in this phrase, a new degree of life. Because there is life in the church in the first place. It's not that there's no life in churches and that no one is living for God. It's a matter of the degree that it is lived out. It is a work of the Lord. It's not summoned by people. There are times when there is a work of the Holy Spirit among churches, among people, where He does such a work that it transforms whole churches and the community around them. I also like John Piper's uh, definition. Um, This is the last definition I'll give, but this one is so thorough and just really well said, I wanted to share it as well. Uh, John Piper states this, In the history of the church, uh, the term revival, in its most biblical sense, has meant a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians, has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, earnest desires for more of Christ in His Word, boldness in witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. You feel God is moved here. And basically, revival then is God doing among many Christians at the same time or in the same region usually what He is doing all the time in individual Christians' lives as people get saved and individually renewed around the world. I like that definition. The qualities that are mentioned Uh, The specific characteristics that he highlighted that are important to understanding revival is it's often regional. It's often within some specified time frame. 
Uh, and it manifests its effects in the fruit of people's lives, in the churches, and often in the surrounding community. Uh, these definitions are helpful. I wanted to start with defining my terms uh, because it's necessary to understand uh, the church's historic understanding of revival. And what I would like to do with the remainder of our time is, is, is look at the church's basis for understanding revival from Scripture. And rather seeking to give a systematic understanding of revival I, that could be done, I, I thought it would be the most profitable to just observe a few narrative accounts in the early pages of Scripture. And so I'm just going to look at a few accounts. There are many throughout Scripture, but I wanted to look at the very beginning of the Bible just to show how this has always been God's way. And He has set in pattern a motion, He has set in motion a pattern that He uses to awaken people to Himself throughout the ages of redemptive history. I want to trace this theme of revival throughout redemptive history because I want us to see and be encouraged uh, that this work of revival has always been God's way. And I want us to be encouraged and have faith that it is still God's way. Uh, That as we look at our own spiritually dark culture, as we look at the slumber and the worldliness and even the deadness of the American churches, we can be hopeful that God can awaken. Uh, There's a few similarities I want to show in these revivals in Scripture. Uh, One similarity is that each revival takes place against the backdrop of a dark time in the history of God's people. Revivals usually take place against the backdrop of a dark time in the history of God's people. It's often when it seems like things are the most gone. When all seems lost, that is when the Spirit seems to do His best work. Other similarities between revivals and Scripture are that revivals typically feature repentance and change of heart. They typically feature a recovery of God's truth. And the outward result is usually some kind of restoration of true worship. And as we'll see from these different texts at the beginning of the story of Scripture, uh, revival is often also manifested in different ways. Uh, There's not just one uniform way that revival plays out. We would like that. We like neat categories for things. But revival is often brought about through various means that God delights to use. And so what I want to do is really show three different ways that God brings revival in His story. And I want to look at some of the first revivals in Scripture. And I want to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 4. We'll start with Genesis chapter 4. One of the great encouragements we have in Scripture is that it doesn't take long after the fall, which was in chapter 3, for, for God to do a great work among a large group of people. Genesis chapter 4 is one chapter after the fall. And that, that just shows the grace of God that the fall happens and the next chapter shows the first revival in Scripture. And just to summarize the backdrop, the dark time that God's people were in, even though there were not really many on the earth, In this chapter, chapter 4, it's the famous account of Cain murdering his brother Abel. And after the curse, Adam and Eve had expected a promise from the Lord that one of their sons would carry out the promise of bringing humanity's Savior in Genesis 3.15. The promised seed who would crush the serpent's head. And already on the scene of history, as, as they're bearing sons... One is murdered. The other has corrupted worship. And with the death of Abel really came not only the death of a martyr, but also a loss of hope for the world. After the curse, Adam and Eve continued to have children, and it would seem as though from this scene that perhaps fallenness was too great on the earth. 
We read on in chapter 4 that there was a multiplying of people on the earth and Cain even founded his own city. And it even looks good in some ways. They're making musical instruments and the tools and farming. But there's no acknowledgement of the Creator God. No mention of worship. It seems implied that the way of Cain was the new way that people would operate on the earth. And it seemed like a dark time. But then another was born. Appointed by God Himself. His name actually means appointed one. Verse 25 of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Look at this next verse in, chapter, in verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he's called his name Enosh. Here's a phrase that just randomly pops out. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It just sort of jumps off the page. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. That last little phrase is simple, but it doesn't really give us a lot of details, but it really reveals this is the first move of God in a group of people. I would call it the first revival. I call it that first of all because you have a group of people. And revival is not just individuals, it is a group of people. It can also be called a revival because it says they began to call upon the name of the Lord. Something happened in humanity. God in His grace got redemption moving forward by having a bunch of people drawn to Himself. We learn from this that God can bring revival through a faithful remnant. That's the first point I want to kind of bring up through one of the ways God brings revival in this world. We learn from this that God can bring revival through a faithful remnant. Now I mentioned that God always keeps a remnant. Throughout every age, God has kept at least a few. Even in the time of Noah, there was at least Him. God always keeps some who call upon His name. Uh, but in redemptive history, what tends to happen is sometimes God takes a remnant and He uses them to multiply that remnant to a greater degree. Seth was a man of faith and righteousness. Genesis goes on in the next chapter to describe his family line, and there seems to be a thread of faithfulness in that family. Uh, men such as Enoch who walked with God. The New Testament reveals he was a preacher of righteousness. And again, we don't know all the details of, of how this line of Seth affected others in society. Uh, but we know there must have been a great spiritual move of God. One thing I want us to be encouraged by in this passage is that notice that the first revival God's using begins in the unit of the family. It is a family line that God is bringing this about. We should never discount the power of faithfulness to the Lord in our homes. The power of family worship, which must have been restored in Seth's line. The power of discipling children and teaching his praiseworthy deeds. The power of maintaining a godly example. One thing that's interesting about Seth and these patriarchs that come after him is that they lived several centuries at a time. This is a unique time in redemptive history where people lived many hundreds of years, even up to 900. And they have a unique privilege in history to see the fruit of their witness generations down the family tree. Just imagine that. I believe God is still doing that, but we don't get to see the, the privilege of, of how widespread our witness is in the family line. But God works through family lines. He may skip generations at times, but the faith that is preserved can have an impact. We, just, we talk so much about revival in the context of nations and in the context of societies and in communities and local churches. 
But let's not forget that the most basic building block of society and of churches, the backbone is the unit of the family. For that is what God instituted first. And families devoting themselves to the Lord and serving Him can have a powerful effect on the wider segments of society, whether it be the church, whether it be a surrounding society. Some in this room are believers because the Christian faith was handed down by some distant family member. Maybe you have no idea who. Others in this room may be the first to have the Christian faith and they're passing it down. And you and I will never know until we're in heaven how God has used our spiritual legacy within the family line. It's just interesting to me that God does all these big things in Scripture to bring revival. And the very first one is rather simple. People are faithful and they stand in stark contrast to the world around them. And God calls people to Himself. They call upon His name through this family line. All this to say, we we should not belittle the power of a little remnant. We shouldn't belittle the mighty work of God that He can do within a family unit or a remnant in a community. We shouldn't limit what God can do with a small local church. Remember that God delights to do much with little. Don't forget Jesus had only a handful of disciples and they were used to turn the world upside down. There are accounts of missionaries in the history of the church who went to remote regions with just themselves or a small group, sometimes just their families. And there are reports that after decades of investing in a people and a culture, fruit was born just from the faithfulness of a few. And we should be encouraged by those accounts. It doesn't mean that God is always going to multiply with a few, but it's certainly in His toolbox. We should be encouraged that one of the great ways God brings revival can be through the faithfulness of a remnant. Moving on through redemptive history, you start to see this remnant dwindling as you read through Genesis. The effects of the fall become more and evident. And if there's any evidence for the wickedness of the human heart, just read the pages of Genesis. God's doing these great works and man continually returns to his old ways. Up to the flood, you see that Noah is, and his family are left as the only small remnant, once again, who call upon the name of the Lord. And after the flood, you see that it doesn't take long for the world to, as it's repopulated, it becomes, once again, corrupted by societies and nations that are filled with violence and filled with immorality. How quickly people, after generations, forget the Lord their God. But you still see pockets of remnants. You see Abraham called by God. You see Sarah. You see Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and others. God is still keeping a witness for Himself. He's still making covenants. But there seem, it seems as though a large, widespread move of God becomes absent from the scene again. And history, as it often does, has this decline of a dark time once again. And as the Israelites multiply in the land of Egypt after the time of Joseph, over a period of over 200 years, they're in bondage and slavery. And we don't know a ton about this long stretch of time, but we do know it was another dark time in the history of God's people and in the world. It was dark from the standpoint of their plight as God's people were crying out in distress but it was also a dark time from the standpoint of their spiritual state. While there were undoubtedly several who must have still known the Lord of their fathers, and we have indication of that in Aaron and others, it seems that there were many, as we're told later in Joshua, who had adopted the culture of Egypt. Many had gone after foreign gods. And Yahweh was really just kind of one among many. 
We're told by and large that the people of Israel had become idolatrous just like the nation they were in bondage to. And then it seems like all is lost. And against this backdrop, God decides to do something. God raises up a man named Moses. And in chapter 14, uh, after this whole exodus, I'm not going to tell the whole exodus story, but you sort of know what happens. God uses him to sort of lead this mass exodus out of Egypt uh, with plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. And then you see something happen in the spiritual condition of God's people. I'm going to read verse 30 of chapter 14 in Exodus. It says this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I just want to pause at that point and point out how great this was. Uh, This was not just a deliverance from one nation. This was a deliverance from the mightiest empire on the earth. And they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Their captors, their their mighty warriors who had kept them in bondage. And not only was God exposing the emptiness and the weakness of this nation of Egypt, He was also exposing their false deities. For all of the plagues were in, in effect in order to show that they were powerless. But Then look at verse 31. Interesting phrase. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Now again, the the Israelites had witnessed the greatest blow to the most powerful nation on the earth. I don't think we we see it in cartoons and movies, and it, it looks amazing, but I think the sight of it must have been just spectacular. That God would drown this whole army. And through all the plagues and the final drowning of this army, God exposes Egypt and their gods. And verse 31 gives this statement that the people saw it, and as a result, they feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. Now, I want us to realize how massive this would be because I think we still don't have an idea in our minds. Exodus earlier states, just a couple chapters earlier, that the number of the Israelites who had exited Egypt was around 600,000 men on foot, not including women and children. 600,000 men on foot. 600,000 who had been enslaved and adopted the culture of Egypt have looked on these Egyptians and are repudiating all that they thought about them. Now, in case your mind is jumping ahead to the other things that Israel does, we're going to get to that. But I want to sort of just highlight this moment in their story. This is a massive group of people. And it says in the text that many believed in the Lord. It's possible this could be one of the biggest revivals God's done in His story. God has done a work in their midst that has brought many of them to transfer their fear of the Egyptians to a fear of Himself. And this fear is not isolated. It's joined with faith. Now, we don't know how many in this large group uh, had genuine faith. We don't know how many were nominal. As we'll soon look at, there were many who were. We don't know how many would eventually apostatize. But the indication in these verses that I want to focus on is that many were revived. That God was doing something amazing in God's people. There were possibly many who had faint ideas of the God of their fathers. Like it had been passed down, but a lot of it was lost as there was not a copy of the Scriptures. Perhaps many had a low view of them compared to the Egyptian gods. Perhaps many just had wrong ideas altogether about who He is. But now, God, Yahweh, 
has put Himself on display by putting Egypt in their place and bringing deliverance to Israel. And this, of course, serves as the type for the rest of Scripture for what the Gospel will be when God delivers His people from the world. And this shows a second aspect of revival in redemptive history, which is that God can bring revival through judging a nation. God can use a remnant, but when the remnant is unfaithful, God can bring revival through judging a nation. This continues to be a pattern throughout the Bible. God judges nations. Often over time as He gives them over to their wickedness, but even even in His timing through a devastating event, whether it be war or pestilence, famine. And in His providential mercy, in the midst of dark judgments that God brings upon nations, it's often the case in Scripture that God is doing something else with His people. God often wakes up His people and turns many desperate hearts to Himself. A couple examples from church history bear this out. One notable example is the famous bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death in the Middle Ages. The Black Death had swept across the European continent in the Western world, killing over a third of Europe. And although I'm careful to designate what is a judgment of God and what isn't, uh, many seem to think that with the wickedness that was happening in the church at the time and what was happening in the nation, that it was definitely some kind of demonstration of His wrath. Well, history records that the timing was really perfect because it records that at this time, people's hearts were becoming ripe for sober examination of their mortality. More than ever, people were starting to think about the brevity of their days. And it's interesting that at this time, toward the end of the Middle Ages, with so much widespread death, many people turn their hearts toward the Reformers when the Gospel truths are brought forth on the scene of history. Luther and others record that many who had feared the bubonic plague were flocking to hear with eager ears what eternal life might mean. So God can use major judgments, even horrific devastations upon nations to be a catalyst for the Spirit to move. He can bring fear, which is a good starting point, as it was for Israel. He can bring awe, and He can awaken faith. This should make you and I think carefully about what the Lord might have in store for judging our nation. We, of course, already see that His wrath is being revealed as you know, this downward spiral of Romans 1 is in effect, and as God is giving over our nation to many forms of wickedness. But yet one wonders if there's yet a, still a great humbling judgment to come. Such, of course, is in the hidden counsels of God. We don't know the future. Uh, But it's a frightening prospect. But in the midst of that frightening prospect, let's not forget that it may be what God uses to usher in a new wave of sober examination. It may be what God uses to bring more desperate hearts to Himself. It may be that God uses the judgment of this nation to awaken more people to eternal life and bring revival. We should pray for these things. The Reformers had a phrase, after darkness, light. And we should pray for that light. Back to the ancient Israelites. I want to take a moment to highlight this early revival in its expression because to some it might seem from these two pithy verses that maybe it's not convincing enough that there was reviving happening in these people's souls. So chapter 15 actually continues uh, with another important element of revival that I I mentioned earlier is a response to truth. And it's restored worship. Restored worship. 
in chapter 15, we see right after these events, there is this lively, large-scale worship service that occurs in response to the Lord's power. And I'll simply just read a couple pieces from it. You could read the whole song yourself. Verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. And you you continue down the line and you you continue reading and you see that this whole song is highlighting the greatness and the soul greatness of God. Now notice again, it's not just Moses singing here. He's not just the, the lonely leader singing before them. The people are joining in. And I don't believe this is just some spontaneous break into song like you see in a musical. God could do that. I think this implies that there must have been a concentrated effort to express what they had learned about who God is. This song was composed. The people were learning and articulating who is God. What has He done for us? How great is He? What has He become for us? He has become our strength and our salvation. And just in case you still think maybe this is just a stale worship service, just a bunch of chanting, later on in verse 20, you have Miriam joining in. And it's a really interesting account here. Verse 20 says, Then Miriam the prophetess, this is the sister of Aaron and Moses, she took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Verse 21, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. Now this is a lively response to the God who saved them. I I believe it's genuine worship happening on the part of many of the Israelites here. And again, I I want you to remember that there's over 600,000 in attendance. Some of us have had the blessing of going to the conferences where you're around this large group of people and everyone is singing worship songs at once. And there's this powerfully encouraging effect that it has when you just hear so many voices lifting their hearts to God in unison. And the Israelites are celebrating. They have instruments. It's a moving time. It's a time of excitement. And how could they not be excited when you consider what they've been delivered from? And I want to note here, especially for those of us here in Reformed circles, excitement in itself is good and very appropriate when souls are spiritually revived. Uh, The key is that emotions should be an overflow of a response to truth received in the mind, rather than the opposite, where the mind is sort of led by the emotions. Excitement, when grounded in truth about God, is very fitting, very becoming of the people of God. And if you look at revivals through history, such as the the great awakenings in our history and others, where God's truth was received after a dark time, after a stale time, There's often the response of intense excitement and zealous expression. It's often a sign of life. It's a sign that the Spirit is moving in the whole person. And the people here in Israel were sobered with fear at the judge of the earth. And this led to revived fervor for this Lord, this judge who had become their Savior. This is revival. And I would love to be able to say that from this point forward in redemptive history, there was just this steady incline and this spiritual high that never left the people of Israel and that they never turned their hearts away from the Lord. Many of us know that this was not the case. In fact, you don't even finish 
this chapter, just a couple verses later, you have people grumbling after this song. You don't even finish the book of Exodus before seeing that many fall prey to deception and to great sins. And even among many, total apostasy. And as the book continues after this, this great revival, as is often the case, God wants to test and teach His people's hearts over time. This is one of the great tests of a genuine revival. Uh, See how it plays out over time. Uh, As the fervor dies down, and it often will, uh, how will people live? As the singing stops and the the tambourines are put away, so to speak, uh, there comes a time when it is good to be settled and, and and be still and know that He is God. A time for God's renewed people to to be discipled and to start learning about Him and applying their hearts to Him. It's time to grow in obedience to Him and learn His expectations. The Christian life is not to be equated with an experience of the emotions. There are other times when emotions will run dry and you have a whole book of Psalms to play that out for you. And there are times when God wants you to wait on Him. And He tests the hearts of His people in the wilderness of this world. And in this people here, literally a wilderness. And Moses, throughout the book after this, is their appointed leader, and he's gradually receiving instruction from the Lord. He's meeting with God and bringing His instruction back to the people. And I think it's interesting that God doesn't just give it to him all at once. But he has the people waiting. And as we soon see in the book, that as is the case with human nature, when fervor begins to wane, many of the people begin to be led by their own desires and their own ideas for a continued spiritual experience. This is an important reminder about revival. Where there is true revival and a great work of God, Satan loves to prey upon the hearts with counterfeits. He loves to prey upon people's hearts. It's a time when people are most sensitive, most vulnerable, most moved with emotion. Chapter 32, the scene starts to change. 32, it takes a very sad turn. Chapter 32 of Genesis says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Uh, Note again this uh, spirit of impatience. Uh, What is soon born is a vile syncretism of joining other gods into their worship. And verse 2 continues with, that, with uh, what is not Aaron's finest moment. Aaron then responds, Take off the rings of gold that are in the, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And look what it says, verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, "These These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's a tragic turn of events. From the outward perspective of many Israelites, this probably looked like it was probably a new wave of revival happening. A new excitement. Probably even better than before. I mean, there's feasting. There's jubilance. There's sacrifices being made. 
Uh, people are dedicating their days to this. It says they're getting up early. But with this new fervor is also the incorporation of idolatry and even hints at immorality. Uh, this is a counterfeit revival. Uh, this is what we refer to, we refer to as fanaticism. Uh, to an undiscerning eye, fanaticism looks a lot like revival. Uh, fanaticism appears good, and it's characterized by restored passion, and, but it's, just, it's devoid of truth. It, it mixes what is false and harmful with even good spiritual things. But it looks good on the surface. It looks like a good move of God because it seems to oppose other deficient conditions. That's what the subtlety is. It opposes indifference and apathy and deadness, things that we should want to avoid. Uh, The subtle error of fanaticism is that it views any great move of excitement to be a good ally to zeal. Uh, Any form of excitement should be welcomed if it overcomes religious stagnation. Any sense of warmth is good when there's been coldness. Any action is good when it seems like things haven't been happening for a while. And now again, emotion and excitement are good things. They're, they're often signs of the Spirit working, but we need to remember that the Spirit will never contradict God's truth. As one theologian said, fire is good, wildfire is not. Jonathan Edwards observed this in the days of the Great Awakening. He was one of the most instrumental preachers in America's Great Awakening. He says this, The weakness of human nature has always appeared in times of great revivals of religion. By a disposition to run into extremes, especially in these three things, enthusiasm, superstition, and intemperate zeal. That's what happens oftentimes in the midst of even good revivals. To quote Ian Murray once more, because he's just so good at phrasing things, He also defines the counterfeit side to revival really well. Murray says this, looking at church history. Once a revival has begun, history shows that Christians are even less likely to be apprehensive of fanaticism. When they see all around them the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and power, when they witness many lives being wonderfully changed, when preaching is marked by the authority of heaven, it is easy to suppose that the Holy Spirit must be the author of everything which is happening in the churches. Too often, in a time of awakening, Christians have argued that any exercise of caution is unnecessary and grieving to the Spirit of God. They think that no criticism of any kind should be allowed. This is a serious mistake. In revivals, as at every other time, we are still fallen, fallible human beings, prone to faults and errors. Despite all the blessings of true revival, a a time of revival is never a time of unmixed good. Very important points for our discernment. It leads to a question that should come to our minds. Uh, What does God How does he deal with apostasy? It seems discouraging to think that great works of revival are going to get muddled and even lost in the midst of false revivals by Satan. What does God do about this in history? Well, first of all, I want to point out an obvious thing. God is not unmoved by it in the least. It doesn't disrupt his plan. Uh, He's not flustered. He's not muddled. He's not confused. God is still doing the same work He begins in true revival. And He will sort it all out in the end when He separates the wheat from the chaff. But He does take action towards sin. And He does even deal with the works of Satan when they're in the household of God. Just as He can judge an ungodly kingdom like Egypt... He can judge the ungodliness within his own kingdom he is building. And he demonstrates to the people in rebellion that he is not slack. 
Chapter 32 continues. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now this is a very solemn and severe account of how God does a work of separation in the midst of His people. An ultimatum is issued by Moses on who will be on the Lord's side. And a death sentence is given to the rebels throughout the camp, toward the unrepentant. And verse 38 or 28 states, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And now it should be pointed out that um, not everybody was sentenced to death. In fact, as great as 3,000 is, it's still a small fraction if there's about 600,000 of them. We don't know all the details of why these 3,000 were killed. It's reasonable to assume that these were the unrepentant, perhaps the leaders in the rebellion. Verse 35 gives a a less extreme but still severe judgment for the rest of the people. Uh, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. There's some lessons to draw from this as I usher in our last point here. This could imply that although there were many who were total apostates and proved that by their actions, uh, there were still many in Israel who had truly come to know the Lord. And although they're not excused from being swept away into error, it doesn't mean that all souls necessarily are lost. Uh, They are disciplined, but not to the point of anathema. Uh, There's often a harsher judgment upon unrepentant leaders. Jesus himself was harder on the religious leaders who led the people into error. They were still culpable, but there was a special culpability upon those who led them. All are guilty, but there are some who are more sinned against. Some sinners are also victims of sinners. Some who are deceived are not the deceivers. And God takes notice of this, and in His mercy, He can keep His remnant despite them following into the excesses of a false movement. And this is true of the church today. Uh, There's not just Christians in only the most solid churches. Christians are being made all over the place. And God can either take them out, or God can judge a church. It brings the question, uh, what about those who were truly revived? What does God do with them? Well, in the next couple chapters, Moses intercedes for the people. And in his mercy, it decides to renew the covenant that he made with God. In chapter 35, following the covenant renewal, a construction of the tabernacle is explained and a charge is given for anyone to bring their contributions. I'm just kind of fast-forwarding in the book here. Uh, What follows is really a beautiful picture of the Spirit's work. In chapter 35, verse 20, we read this. These are the people who had fallen into this big craze of the golden calf. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. And it continues to go on with what they brought. Some are bringing precious metals and gold. Others are bringing scarlet and clothing. Some are bringing spices. Others are bringing oil. Some are bringing their skills of, skills of craftsmanship. And it's a noteworthy turnaround in the book because many of the same people who had brought gold and supplies for the golden calf have now repented. And they are bringing what they have now for the Lord's work. And to highlight this heartfelt repentance, showing that it's not just mere duty that they're doing this, the phrases are worth highlighting. Um, It says, whose hearts stirred him. Uh, Everyone whose spirit 
moved him. I think this is an indication that there is a movement taking place still within certain souls of the Israelites. And we know who moves within souls. It's not them doing it of themselves. It is a work of the Spirit reviving again. This account shows, lastly, that God can bring revival through chastising His people. God can bring revival through chastising His people. He could do it through a faithful remnant without any judgment. He could judge a nation and awaken many people to Himself. But it's important to also consider that God can chastise His own people. And this becomes the pattern in Israel's history over and over from this point forward. He's always keeping a remnant, but the corporate level has great ups and downs. And God is constantly doing a work of chastising and reviving His people. Even after the great events of the Exodus, you see this event where the people are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's not until the renewal at Shechem in Joshua that He brings His people back to Himself. A new generation. You see it later in the book of Judges. If you want a real book of up and down, read Judges. It sometimes gets a rap as being such a dark book, and it is. It's also a book of tremendous grace over and over. There's a cycle that happens over and over. The people depart from Him and turn to idols. God sends their enemies to oppress the people. The people give a supplication for deliverance. The Spirit raises up a deliverer or a judge to save them. And a period of peace is ushered in and there's life in the land. Over and over, grace after chastisement. And this is a pattern of God with revival. 1 Corinthians 10 actually uses the account of the 3,000 dying as an exhortation for the church. The Corinthian church who actually had experienced certain judgments among them. Last year, we went through the opening chapters of Revelation, and then we saw that Jesus, when He speaks to the seven churches, gives them actual threats of judgment if they will not repent, if they will not overcome. The Lord is not above chastising His people. And we need to be careful that in our desire for revival in our land, that we don't just pray and look at the outside world to repent of their evil. Uh, but we need to pray for the Spirit to grant repentance first in the churches. And the answer to that prayer may be through a work of chastisement. 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment begins with the household of God. To review, and there are many ways God brings revival, but just from these first experiences, we saw three ways God brings revival. God can bring revival in His story and often does through the influence of a faithful remnant. He can use the judgment of a nation by awakening many desperate hearts to Himself. And He can use the chastisement of His people. There are many means God has. These are just in the first parts of the Bible. Um, the next time I teach, I would like to continue the narrative of redemptive history and, and continue looking at this theme of revival by looking at not just the outward ways He uses revival and brings it about, but also the inward ways He uses it. And so next time, I would like to actually look at how God uses prayer and the Word in bringing revival. And so that will be next time. Uh, a closing application for us as we pray for revival is to look within Look within. You can't engineer a revival. We as a church cannot bring revival. The Spirit must do this. But how goes it with your own soul? How goes it in the state of your soul before God? It's very easy to, to have our heart beat for wanting revival in communities and nations and churches and ignore the revival that's often needed with us. Uh, let us seek the Lord. Let us be that remnant that is living for Him. 
And let us respond when he chastises us. And let us look to what God is doing with this nation and pray with open eyes that we would be the ones who would rise up and uphold his name. Let's pray. Father, as we just looked at the beginning of your scripture, we know that you are doing so many other things in your story. But we thank you, Lord, for these truths. We thank you for the work you are doing in your people. We pray that we would be constantly examining ourselves. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit in our midst, that we would apply our hearts to you, to live for you, to be zealous. Uh, Prevent us from losing our first love. Draw us nearer to Christ and make us his hands and feet in our land. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.